Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories about alcoholism, addiction, and recovery. This is Amanda, and I am joined tonight by my co-hosts, Jean and Catherine. Hi, ladies. How are you? Hello. Hey there. Hey, how are you? Good to hear your voices. And um, we are all thrilled to announce that we have Ellie back on the show tonight, who is one of the founders of the Bubble Hour. (laughs) And she's rejoining us as a co-host. Hi, guys. It's so awesome to be back. Thank you. Hi, Ellie. Yeah. It's so Yay. great to hear your boys. <laughs> <laughs> and we are also um, have a guest, Lisa, on the show tonight. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Hi, guys. Good to be back. Yes, great to have you back. Thank you. Um, so now that I've introduced everyone, I'm going to turn the show over to Ellie to run in, uh, run it and dig into the topic. Great. Thank you, Amanda. Everybody bear with me. I'm a little rusty on doing this, but uh, hopefully we'll, you know, it feels good to be back in the saddle. Um, so tonight's show is going to be an open discussion about rehab and or treatment and wh- why, when, where, and how to go. Um, in our show description, we said that we were speaking to people who may be considering treatment as an option for them, and you may be thinking that you have a problem with alcohol. You may have tried everything you can to stop on your own, and nothing has been working. And you may vacillate between thinking, you know, hey, I'm not that bad, and I need help. But you don't know how to go about getting the help that you need. Many people um, know or think they may need to go to a detox and or rehab, but are very afraid to do so for a variety of reasons. One of them would be shame. Another one would be um, just a a great uncertainty about what treatment would be like and how would they get in. And even if you feel like you want to go, who do you ask for help and what resources are out there to help you find the treatment that is right for you? How long do you need to stay? Do you need a medical detox? What is a medical detox? And how do you juggle the complexities of work and or family life while you're in treatment? And how can friends and family be helpful and what is their role? Um, On tonight's show, we will all be discussing our own experiences of going to detox and or treatment. We will answer the questions above and also discuss the common symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, the difference between inpatient and outpatient rehab, and the difference between a detox and a rehab center and much more. Um, So I think what we'll do is we'll just start by getting right into the stories. And Lisa, we would love to hear about your experiences with treatment. We'll start with you. Great. Thanks, Ellie. Um, well, I, I kind of I, I think back of my journey of how it sort of began. And, um, you know, I was in full-blown active alcoholism, but still fighting for my right to drink. And um, I had gotten a second OUI, 
and lost my license, and I um, knew that I was going to have a court-appointed treatment ahead of me, but still kind of really was kind of looking at this as not a long-term problem, but just a bad luck scenario. Um, But my friend, Amanda, um, who I had known for the past 15 years, and uh, a very dear friend and still is and also was a great drinking partner who was um, also facing some legal challenges. And I was really hanging on to, to the fact of, well, I'm just not that bad. Um, and in reality, I absolutely was. But um, but I thought, well, as long as I could find somebody that just might be in a little bit more trouble than I am, that I still hadn't reached my bottom. So it had kind of begun to the point that I had helped Amanda get some help. And um, after she had so, – so I recognized the treatment was available, it was out there, and it could um, – benefit people, but I didn't identify that that was something I needed yet. And in really, it was a short time um, over the course of a, a couple of months that I progressed from, I think, sort of being emotionally addicted to being physically addicted. I couldn't, I, I suffered extreme withdrawals if I didn't drink. And um, how I started sort of my treatment journey was my children had seen um, how Amanda was thriving and had reached out to their dad and said, um, you know, mom needs help. We want our mom back. So it had started with sort of a full-blown intervention. Um, but I will say that at that point, I, you know, I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live. Um, and it was, I felt completely helpless and I felt shameful and I thought, I'm an intelligent person. How could this possibly be a problem that I can't take care of myself? So when the intervention took place, it was really a a form of relief. Um, My family flew in from out of state. My friends were gathered. Um, Both Ellie and Amanda were there. And I knew the minute I saw um, everybody pull up to my house exactly what was going on, and I knew exactly what the outcome was going to be, is that I was going to say yes. So that was where it had started. Um, I first went to a detox, a medical detox, for um, five days. And that was very difficult. I had, um, I was really struggling with the fact that I'm not like all of these people. I know I've got a problem. I definitely need this. But I still held on to being that specialness. Um, These people, you know, there was a lot of um, people that were in there for drugs, which I didn't identify with. Um, and there were also an awful lot of people that were repeat offenders um, that were just, you know, cycling in and wearing a badge of honor saying, yeah, this is my 18th time in detox. And I uh, would roll out of there and, you know, and people would say, yeah, we'll see that person back in another three weeks if they make it. So it was kind of a, a an eye-opening experience, one that I was still going, I don't, you know, I guess I need this. This is a necessary step to getting the help that I need, but get me out of here. Um, in reality, there was program, um, and I kept thinking I didn't need it. I absolutely did. My blood pressure was, was spiking um, all over the place, and I was in need of medical detox. I needed to be medically cleared to move on to a 28-day program. 
which I finally did. Um, and, you know, even it, it, there was about, the census was about 30 people. And I sort of had a pleasant experience. I still was kind of looking around and saying, well, I, I, you know, I can identify with this person because they're an alcoholic, but not those drug addicts. I've completely changed the way I look at recovery. I'm absolutely no different. Drinking is a symptom for me. It's it's an inside job, and I've got a lot of work to do to maintain my sobriety. And um, so it it was probably about, I think it was day five, that I was um, in the treatment center, all sorts of filled with emotions. Glad I was there, but I'm still riddled with guilt of leaving sort of my kids behind. Um, and responsibilities and, and really feeling awful about, you know, do I deserve to be 100% concentrating on myself? And maybe, you know, I still kind of thought, <clears throat> maybe I'm maybe I'm just not that bad. And I got a phone call from my family, out, um, again, out, out of state, and I had an uncle that um, I had admired, um, that was only a few years older than I was, successful. Um, our children are only a year apart, and he passed away um, from an alcohol-related death, um, Pharisees. He essentially um, bled out in his in his throat, and he had gone to work either that day or the day before, um, and an extremely intelligent, fun person I've grown up with and absolutely adored. And that was really a turning point for me. It was kind of a, oh, wow, this um, this disease wants me dead, and this disease doesn't discriminate. And that was sort of a point where I said, I've got to take this seriously. I put my heart and soul into it. Um, I attended, you know, it, it sort of the, the program itself keeps you busy from sort of 7 a.m. right until bedtime. And... I, I loved it, but I looked at it like I was going to school. Um, and I remember at one point them saying that, you know, they're really, you should kind of move on to a step-down program, which was, again, another inpatient type of facility, but there was a little bit more interaction sort of with outside meetings. And I thought, no, 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 I don't need that. I just need to, um, you know, I just need to learn how to fix this problem. I need to get back. But what I did agree to was a, a sober living environment. Uh, in hindsight, and I did that for another month. So I, in total, I was away for 60 days. Um, the last 30 days was some outpatient program. Um, again, 100%, you know, there, there were some restrictions relative to a curfew and um, certainly, obviously, no drinking. But it was really more of like a sober living environment rather than treatment. And in hindsight, I wish I would have done something in between because it was a very difficult thing to kind of go from, um, you know, where life is all about me. And, it's, and it, again, this was, you know, about an hour away from where I live. And it was a community that, you, you know, you'd go and get a 30-day trip and you'd get a standing ovation. Um, it, it's, it's got incredible recovery. It's, you've got the biggest cheerleading fans. And um, it was like just being on top of the world. Well, when I, you know, when I came back home, it's not always like that. Um, so it was, 
it was a difficult trans transition for me to to say, you know, okay, I've been one hundred percent about my recovery. Now I've got to reintroduce my my kids, my responsibilities, my work, my everything, and that whole concept of you know that recovery needs to come first or everything else goes away is absolutely how um, I live my life today. And um, you know there was there was a transition. It was it was hard after the first year that I was back. I really thought, gosh, I don't know. You know, this is I'm I'm committed to this, but I hope I'm going to enjoy it. And now I look at it as um, I wouldn't want my life any other way. It was there is no doubt in my mind that I was at a point that medical detox was necessary for me. And in addition, I don't think that I, um, you know, could have, I celebrated three years in August and um, treatment absolutely gave me the foundation. A 12-step program that I practice, um, you know, is something that helps me maintain as well as seeing a therapist. And I have a very, you know, sort of diverse toolbox, um, you know, to help me live life today. But without that solid foundation, I'm, I'm not sure that um, I could have made it. So I look back. It was a, it was a difficult time, but um, as a turning point into, um, really, I, I do kind of look at it like the best is yet to come, and I'm enjoying every aspect of my new life. So there you go. <laughs> That's such a powerful story, Lisa. Thank you so much for sharing it. And I know we're all going to have some questions and some things that we want to go to in uh, further detail. Um, But I think we're going to move ahead and have Amanda share her story, and then we'll all be circling back to talk um, about several of the things that come up as part of uh, of our sharing our experiences. So thank you very much. We appreciate it. And uh, Amanda, how about you talk a little bit about your experience? Okay. Let's see. Where do I begin? Um, well, just just a little bit about my drinking. I had actually, um, I, I had never tried to stop drinking despite multiple arrests, and a lot of people have heard my story on here, but I had been arrested um, twice for drunk driving, um, and the second time it had been dismissed. And um, what was interesting about that is I thought, okay, you know, it got dismissed, you know, I'm, but, you know, I'm going to be aware of my drinking and I'm going to be on top of it. You know, I'm going to watch it, um, but um, I'm okay. I can keep drinking. And actually, um, it's funny um, in an ironic way. Part of the, that second arrest is they sent me to a counselor to get evaluated to see if I needed to um, get involved in some sort of treatment, and um, I went and I met with the counselor, and they said, no, you know, and I told the counselor a lot of lies, including that I wasn't drinking at the time, and after talking to her for an hour or two, she said, well, I, you know, I don't think you're an alcoholic. I think you can drink, and so that was like my go. That was my green light, and I continued to drink for another year and a half after that arrest, and um, what what brought me into treatment um, as Lisa mentioned, um, I, I got arrested again for what ended up being my second, third arrest, but my second charge for drunk driving. And um, at that point leading up to that, I was, um, I had, my drinking had picked up. Um, I'm pretty sure I was not physically addicted, but I, I had, I was definitely mentally addicted to alcohol. 
Um, it was it, my life revolved around it, and I was, you know, crossing all those lines that, um, you know, that we draw in the sand and say, oh well, if I do this, then you know, then I'll get help. And you know, and a, and a couple times along the way, um, I, I had, Ellie would you know say things to me too, you know, like oh, you know, you know, maybe you should, you know, because Ellie was sober at the time and said, you know, maybe you should seek some treatment. And I thought it was really great that she was sober, but I, I was not going to do that on my own. Um, but then my arrest came, and um, leading up to that, I had been, I had been started probably for a month or two before that my you know the wild nights turned into just just always out of control there was a time where it was like <clears throat> i would drink and and um you know some nights were good and sometimes they would get out of control and um near the end of my drinking every you know, it, it was just a mess every single time and i was waking up in the morning and just hating myself um so i was arrested on a sunday and um, that Monday I had to go to court, and I was quite devastated. Um, and <clears throat> um, after court, I went home for the day, and I really didn't understand what, you know, we're going to talk about tonight about medical detox, but I basically was detoxing myself. I had, um, I actually had a drink before I went to court, and I had one when I got home because I was shaking so badly um and i had no idea that that was a danger sign um but anyways i was i was home by myself and um lisa had caught wind of it and she called ellie and arranged um an intervention uh for me and the minute you know likely so the minute i saw them come to the door i said okay i'll go um and my you know i had a, a thought i wanted to say about that but Basically, I, I, um, the, you know, I talked to my friends and my family that night, and the next morning, Ellie came over, and I um, tried to get myself into treatment. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but um, I got on the phone first. I called my insurance company, and I asked, you know, where, you know, if I could get treatment, and they gave me or where I could go, and they gave me some phone numbers, and then I just started making phone calls and. Amazingly, it was really, really hard to get into treatment. I called about 10 places. I had one place in mind that I really wanted to go to, and um, I persisted in calling them. I called them every hour, and later in the day, they um, finally called me back and said, you know, someone must be looking out for you. We had a bed open up, and they they actually got me into treatment that day. Um, so I went into detox and, oh, the, um, the point I wanted to make about my intervention is Lisa knew me very well and she was very smart. She had someone from my work at my intervention. One of my bosses was at my intervention and that, uh, I'll share why that's important in in a minute, but, um, I went into detox that day. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Um, Ellie drove me down. Um, she dropped me off. I was crying. Um, I didn't know what to do. And, um, you know, I basically, um, I went in there and I just surrendered. I, um, my life had gotten bad enough that I 
knew that I needed to make a change and I needed to stop drinking. And I I actually really thought that my life was over. So I was, and, you know, I said, well, you know, I can just, you know, live the life of a nun. I can just, you know, I can live this boring life and, and you know, at least, you know, at least I won't kill myself or someone else. That was kind of where my mind was at. Um, and, you know, sitting in there, uh, you know, similar to Lisa, there were a lot of people that were addicted to drugs that I couldn't relate to, but for whatever reason that didn't bother me. I um, Nothing bothered me. I, I, I walked in there and I just just gave up and said, you know, just tell me what to do and I'll do whatever you, you, you want me to do, and and I did. Um, I was there, I was in detox for six days, um, and I was actually very surprised that, you know, considering I had detoxed myself, as I mentioned, all day on Monday until I got there, um, which is probably about 5 o'clock on Tuesday, and, and they gave me what they call protocol, which is medication to um, help you detox from alcohol, and I you know, I explained to them, I, you know, when I checked into the facility, I blew a zero when they tested me for alcohol because um, I hadn't drank since noon the day before. And um, they still put me on treatment. And, you know, I've come to find out it's because, that you know, a couple days after you stop drinking is when you're at the greatest risk. And so, you know, I was at risk of my blood pressure spiking, Um but I, you know, at the time I didn't understand that. I just did what they told me to do. But you know, they they put me on med- medication, and I stayed there for six days. And when I got out of there, um, I was given an option when I was in treatment um, to either go continue on into a 28-day program, like Lisa did, or to do an intensive outpatient program. And I was. Very, um, I've always been very career driven. My, my, you know, my work was everything to me. So I made a choice to go to an outpatient program um, because I thought I was going to get right back to work. And um, so I did do that. And in hindsight, I do wish I had stayed for the 28-day program. Um, you know, fortunately, it did work for me, but I, I got out and I, I had a meeting with my boss, and um, he said, you know what, you know, take whatever time you need to take care of yourself. And so we agreed that I would take, um, I think it was five weeks off of work, and I attended the intensive outpatient program three days a week, and I attended recovery meetings every um, every day in addition to that. And basically, I just threw myself into getting sober. Um, and doing everything that people told me to do. But um, I actually found that my experience in detox to be very helpful. I learned a lot. They do have programs when you're in there from pretty much all day long. And um, and then my outpatient program was very helpful as well, um, although I was getting a lot more out of my recovery meetings, and which is where I you know grew this amazing network of people in real life that help me on a daily basis. So that's that's basically where my journey started started and you know, I don't know if you want me to talk about the um inpatient program that I had to do earlier. Do you want to get to that later? I think you can describe it because it was a um it was a court ordered program 
But I think it's mm-hmm. an interesting part of your story because you ended up getting a lot out of it, even though it was mandated. Yeah. So, so, so then, you know, so I, um, you know, as I said, I did, I did those programs, and, um, you know, my first year of recovery, I, I um, attended at least one recovery meeting a day, um, and after five weeks, I did return back to work, and that was, um, you know, that was really interesting. I didn't have a license. I worked, you know, it was it was a considerable effort for me to get to work. I had to get rides, rides to a train, take a train. It was like planes, trains, and automobiles, trying to get to work every day um, to and from work. But, you know, I went there, and I've said it before, I made a choice to, you know, work had already been involved, thank God. You know, I can't, I, I mean, it was the smartest thing in the world, like, I that, you know, we'll talk about it more, but, you know, Lisa and Ellie knew me well enough that work was going to be the factor that I would say, nope, I'm not going. Um, And, you know, having my boss there, who they also knew I had a good relationship with, you know, having him there saying, you know what, we support you, your job will be here when you get back, um, was important. I also, you know, own my own home and lived on my own. So it was, you know, I am my own, I am my sole income. Um, So... I went back to work. I, you know, I gradually told people at work that um, the higher ups at work knew what was going on with me. You know, my hours were limited because I was, you know, uh, 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 tied to the train schedule. And um, but, you know, I went back to work and, you know, just just worked and things were great. But then, you know, I had some pretty serious uh, legal consequences to face, and I, you know, I had to. I was out for a couple of court dates. And um, and then I had to go away for, um, there's a mandatory, in Massachusetts, there's a two-week mandatory inpatient program at a state hospital, um, which is pretty hardcore. Um, it's two weeks. You pay for it. It's like over $1,000. Um, you have to, you're supposed to go in there sober. And um, there's two tracks that you can take. You can take, you can pick to either just go there basically to do your time or you can go on the recovery track. They ask you this up front. And, of course, I picked the recovery track, and, and, and I kind of assumed everyone else would. But I went into this program, and there were 55 people. And I want to say that, you know, I was one of maybe three that had been sober, you know, that had gotten sober prior, prior to going. I was almost three months sober. So, you know, going into there, I was a little bit teed off. You know, I was I was, I was, was pissed. I was kind of like, you know, I wasn't pissed. I was like, you know what, this is part of my consequences, something that I need to do. But I was pretty stressed out about having just started my life again, you know, just going back to work, kind of getting back into the normal thing and then having to go away for this two-week thing. Um, but, you know, as I was you know walking in the in the, in you know you have to go there you have to pack all your clothes in a trash bag so you know it's pretty humiliating and it it is um it's it's similar to jail it's not jail it's similar to jail it's it's uh it's very strict you have, you know you have to check in at the in this one room you know for attendance like every hour in between all the different if they send you to all these different classes or your basically in those chairs most of the day but if you go off and do something else you have to check back there before you go eat like they're just you know they definitely make it there's a they 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 keep it very rigid you have like one hour a night um to yourself 
and that's it before bed like after you know recovery groups would come in and share so it was a really interesting experience in a lot of levels um and like i said i went in there it, you know leading up to it i was really like stressing out um at meetings saying oh my you know crying and like oh my god i have to go away for two weeks i think it was it was probably like i have to leave my boyfriend for two weeks something stupid i was just it was just so dramatic to me to have to do this, but knowing me, that's probably what I was upset about. That and smoking. Um, but anyways, um, I went there, and, I, and like the, the day I walked in, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get whatever I can out of this program. And I have to tell you, I learned so much in there. They really had a good program. They taught us about everything. They taught us about, you know, the... the um, physical aspects of alcoholism, about, you know, um, relapse prevention, about, you know, the things that go along. You know, they, they do a whole thing on STDs because a lot of people are promiscuous when they're drinking. They do, um, they had a, a class, you know, they had some special guests come in that had some, um, you know, some serious consequences. And um, so I got a lot out of it, but it was hard. There was, um, you know, like I said, I was probably one of three people that were in there sober. So all day long I was dealing with people that were like, you know, screw this. This is stupid, you know, and just totally not into it. But um, what I found in in any program that you go into is, you know, you just kind of keep your eyes on your own paper and do what you need to do. And um, that actually served me well. The the women that I was there with all got uh, were fighting with each other, and they we almost all got kicked out. But the counselor pulled me aside, and she was like, "What's going on here? You know what happened?" And she's like, "I trust you," because I think she knew I was the only one that, you know, I was sober and kind of had my wits together. So we managed to stay, but it was it was uh, it was a little bit crazy. Um, but I have to say, you know, I learned a lot from it, and um, anything, I look at it this way, anything that I have to do for my recovery and also to pay my amends. Like, I felt good going there and going there with a positive attitude because it, I owed that to society. I, you know, the what could have happened could have been so much worse than what did happen. So, um, I don't know. I think that's it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that oh, that's powerful too, Amanda. Thank you for sharing all that and I'll I'll um jump in and share a little bit myself and then we'll move on to talk about some more specifics and um circle back and we can ask questions if we need to. And um I there's so much of my story that's so similar to what Amanda and Lisa shared. Um and I I I have the dubious distinction of having been to pretty much every type of treatment program that exists out there. And so I think as I'm as I'm sharing, I'll talk a little bit about what the actual experience is like of going to these places, what they do at intake and things like that for people who might be, because um, that was my biggest fear before I went into detox or before I went into inpatient or an outpatient program is what is this going to be like? Because this is just not the kind of thing that you hear about um, in the mainstream world. And um, like Amanda and Lisa, I was at a point in my drinking where it was very clear that I needed to get help. Um, I didn't want to get help, but I was in serious trouble physically um, with my family. I got sober the first time back in 2007. Um, I had been a daily drinker for at least a couple of years. Um, like Lisa described, I had a, an emotional addiction for years to alcohol, and I crossed that invisible line into physical addiction. It only took about 
you know, quite frankly, it took about two weeks. I mean, I, I can remember not being able to not drink and really wanting to, and then suddenly I couldn't not drink, or I would start to get these symptoms of physical withdrawal. And it started with things like racing thoughts and feelings of impending doom, um, sweating, um, trembling in my hands, muscle twitches, and then it accelerated um, as as the you know even within just a couple of week time frame, where I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I would be shaking and sweating and um, feeling just emotionally and physically horrible. And it, it's not it wasn't even like a hangover that you think of in the traditional sense. It was like a full body and mind panic attack. And I realized that if I took a drink or two, that all of those symptoms went away. Um, and so I knew. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew that, you know, drinking in the morning or drinking in the middle of the night does not constitute social drinking, that I was physically addicted, but I was pretty determined to try to beat it on my own, which I, I think is a very, very common um, a, a common thing that happens with people because I, I really don't know of very many people who wake up one day and say, I think I'll voluntarily go into treatment. It's a It's a really scary prospect. So um, my husband had become aware of what was going on, and I basically faced the choice of going to get help um, or being kicked out of the house. And so I fought tooth and nail. I had actually been hospitalized for alcohol-related issues of of withdrawal um, a couple of times over the course of one month. And at the second hospital stay, I convinced the addiction director there that I could do an outpatient program, which um, Amanda, I mean, which Lisa and Amanda both described, but. The, so I did a 10-day outpatient program, which constitutes going, for me, it was daily, five days a week. Um, I had my license at that time, so you show up at 9 o'clock, and they search you, and they and they check you in. And it was at a rehab facility where some patients were inpatient. Um, so I would go to the sessions that they had all day. It was from 9 o'clock to about 3 o'clock of group sessions and individual therapy sessions. And um, I did that for 10 days. And, you know, I, I listened. I made a lot of friends. I kind of treated it like a social experiment. I didn't really identify with anybody. That's a, another common theme is that most of these people were here with problems that seemed much more severe than mine, um, despite all of the consequences I was facing in my own life. Um, and so after the end of the 10-day outpatient treatment, I only lasted a couple of days before I started drinking again. And once I started drinking, I, I couldn't stop because I'm an alcoholic. And so it was only a matter of a week or two before um, it was very clear that I was drinking again and I was required by my family to go into, um, and Amanda was involved in this process, interestingly, also, even though she was not sober at the time, she's been a very good friend of mine for for many, many years, and um, she showed up at my house one day, having heard from me and from my husband um, that I was in trouble and basically told me that she thinks that I have a problem and I needed to get help. And hearing it from somebody who's, you know, I wasn't married to her and I'm not a, not a member of my family. She didn't have any vested interest in um, whether or not I got sober except for the fact that she cared about me. And um, that really got my attention. And I knew that she liked to drink also. And I thought, wow, if Amanda thinks that I have a problem, then maybe, maybe I do. Um, so after the outpatient program failed, I went into a, a medical detox. I ended up staying there for 10 days, which is a much longer stay um, than people typically go to. This was also, you know, whatever, seven or eight years ago, so people did stay longer at detoxes then. Um, and I experienced a lot of what uh, Amanda and Lisa have described. It was absolutely terrifying going in there. They, You go in, they breathalyze you um, and or take a urine test if you have a problem with drugs. 
I think they do that for everybody. And they search your bags. They take anything out of your bag that is potentially has alcohol or any other substance in it that includes things like most hairsprays, perfume, um, even some conditioners and shampoo. I mean, it, the things that people have apparently used or abused um, in some format is, is pretty astonishing. So they go through your bags, they search everything, they go through all of your pockets, and then once everything is deemed to be safe, anything that they need to confiscate, they put away in a safe while you're there. They give you your bag back, and you get a room, typically with a roommate. And at this detox facility, um, while you're on protocol, while you're taking medication, they have a separate part of the facility where they, they give you um, sometimes it's Librium or um, in some cases uh, phenobarbital, some kind of a sedative to uh, counteract the possibility that you could have a a blood pressure spike, which can lead to a seizure or a stroke. That's actually um, an extremely dangerous thing for women in particular. And so once they deem that you are um, past the most dangerous part of the physical detox, they sent sent me right back out into the general population, and you do. You go f- to groups pretty much from, from sunup to sundown. Um, there are about, I'd say, 30 people or 40 people in this detox facility. And I treated it like a class like a college class. You know, I sat in the front. I took a lot of notes. I um, was determined to be the good student and the good doobie, and I said all the right things. And I, you know, I actually ended up making some pretty good friends there. Um, It was hard to identify with a lot of people. It tended to be a younger population. It tended to be, I was 37 at the time. Um, But I, you know, I ended up enjoying it from a social standpoint much more than I thought that I would, and I certainly learned a ton about the disease of addiction. They have a lot of classes on the brain and how the brain processes alcohol um, differently in addicts and alcoholics. And um, so it was really kind of a fact-finding mission for me. And I looked good, better. I sounded great. I walked out of there you know, with a big smile on my face, kind of manic, actually. And my husband brought me home, and he said, I have to go back to work. Are you going to be okay on your own? And I said, oh, yeah, I've got all this literature and I'm going to look for a recovery meeting and everything's going to be fine. And he went back to work and I got in the car and I went to the liquor store because I wanted to prove to them, you know, whoever they are, that I had gone (laughs) 10 days without drinking and I couldn't be an alcoholic. And so my plan was to buy four little bottles of the, you know, the airplane-sized wine and only drink two of them. And I came to about four hours later with two bottles of wine and half a bottle of vodka gone passed out on the floor, and I didn't remember um, even going back to the liquor store. So it was very clear that the 10-day detox had not taken, and in retrospect, I think it's because I was not surrendered, like Amanda des- that Amanda described, and I did not, um, you know, I treated it like a something I was studying, not something that I really needed for a life change. So I literally had not unpacked my duffel bag, and my husband put me back in the car and drove me back to the detox and said, I don't know what to do with her. You guys can take her. I'm done. And they looked at me and said, well, you're lucky a bed just opened up on our 30-day program, which is an inpatient program. And I thought to myself, what do you mean lucky? I can't I can't be away from my family for 30 days. My kids were three and five, at the, or two and five at the time. Um, I was not working, but I, my husband worked a lot, and he didn't know the first thing about how the household was run. And so I stood there and <clears throat> excuse me, threw a little temper tantrum in the intake area and said, you know, this is just simply not possible. My kids can't be – I mean, it was absolutely unthinkable to me to be away from my family for 30 days. And the intake nurse looked at me and she said, well, you know, your husband drove off angry, not really caring what happened to you one way or the other, and um, – 
you know, are you really fully present for your family? When was the last time that you were able to get through an average day without a drink? And that kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. I realized that I might be physically present in the house, but mentally and emotionally I hadn't been any kind of a mother to my kids for a long time. Um, Even with that realization and agreeing to go to the 30-day inpatient program, um, very reluctantly, but I realized I had no place else to go, I could not imagine how my family was going to get by without me in the picture. And uh, I learned a pretty valuable lesson that when families are living with an active addict or alcoholic, it's a profound relief. It was a profound relief to have me out of the house. And that my husband managed and people came in and they helped him and my family. It was not widely known in the community that I was in rehab, but they, you know, people people can get it done. They're capable of things that that you can't imagine they're capable of because I thought I was really the center of, of the universe in my house and what made things tick. Um, and so I settled into the 30-day program, very resistant the first couple of weeks I was there, but after two weeks I got some some real clarity. My mind started to clear. Um, I realized that I was the problem, that alcohol was the problem. And uh, I had a moment of surrender. They took us for a walk one Sunday, and I was looking out across the ocean and realizing that my family was out there on the beach having a nice day and playing in the sand, and I was here in treatment and that I needed help. And I literally fell to my knees and just asked God or whomever was out there, you know, please help me get out of my own way. And I cried for two straight days, and then I really, really listened. I mean, I listened with my heart, not just my head. And I empathized with everybody's stories and everybody's feelings, and I got really educated on the disease of alcoholism, and I realized it was a disease and that it's not my fault that I'm an alcoholic, but that recovery was my responsibility. And by the time I left that 30-day program, I was terrified to be in the real world. I was really, truly scared to leave because I looked at my counselor the day that I left and I said, you know, I, if, I, if I'm out there, I'm going to drink. I need help. And she said, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, Ellie, because that means that you've surrendered and you can't do this on your own. So go to a recovery meeting, meet other people in recovery, and, you know, put your recovery first. And anything you put in front of that, you're going to lose. And... um so that's what I did. I didn't really want to be sober, but I knew I didn't want to drink anymore, so I just did what they told me to do. And it took three or four months before I really wanted to be sober for myself, not just because I was afraid of losing my family. And um, with that foundation of both medical detox and 30-day program, I was able to put almost six years of sobriety together. And um, my relapse story is a is last week's show, in fact, so you can go back and listen to the relapse episode um, to hear the story behind my relapse. But um, it, what ended up happening after I relapsed this time is that because I had built a recovery community, once I relapsed, I, I had a, several people in my life, Amanda and Lisa included, who were able to come swooping in and look me straight in the eye and say, this is absolutely unacceptable. You're going to have to change. Just because you've had these years of sobriety under your belt, this, obviously things are not working for you and um, you need long-term treatment. And I said, okay, I'll go. This is last fall. I'll go to the detox again. Um, within two days of being in the detox, I was fighting to get out of there and thinking, I know what I'm doing. I mean, my what I've learned in retrospect is any time I am negotiating, if I'm negotiating with God or with my family or with my friends, with anybody when it comes to things that are related to alcohol or alcoholism, 
that's my that's my disease speaking. And Amanda set me straight while I was in detox and told me that um, there was nothing to come back to, that if I didn't get the help that I needed, that I was never going to get well. And so I completed the detox program. I went back to the same 30-day program that I went to before, and I spent the majority of the time in that 30-day program trying to leave. I thought my family needs me. My, you know, I have all these things that I'm that I'm obligated to do for my jobs and my obligations. Um, and so I was a good doobie, and I stayed my 30 days. And I kind of nodded my head and thought, yeah, 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 with everything that they were talking about with recovery. I was all full of ego and self, and I thought, I know all this. They're not telling me anything I don't already know. And at the end of 30 days, they were encouraging me to consider going on to longer-term treatment, which would be another inpatient facility, and also sober living. And I said, you know, absolutely, unequivocally, no. I need to get back to my life. And uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I have ever made, quite frankly, in my life is to um, ignore the advice I was getting from people who knew how badly off I was, how far my disease had progressed, and how unsurrendered I was. So I went home. And I made it 90 days before relapsing again. And this time it involved an arrest and a DUI and a child endangerment charge. And so in the course of one relapse, which took about an hour, I hit three or four yets, and my life fell apart. And I know for a fact if I had taken the advice and gone on for longer-term treatment that those things would not have happened. So this time I did surrender. I took all of the advice. I went back to... um, the detox. I did not go back to the 30-day program, but instead went to an inpatient program just for women that was 60 days. And uh, again, it seemed unmanageable to be away from my life for 60 days. I thought, there's no way I can do this. But I, I finally understood that if I didn't take the time for myself, um, which is very hard to do when I have put my family and my friends through so much and my kids through so much alcoholism and addiction is such a selfish disease to say, I'm sorry, guys, now I need to take time for myself. I need to go, you know, think about myself and make sure my head gets right. It's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, but I did it, and I, and I really was able to compartmentalize my quote-unquote real life and dive into the program for the 60 days um, at the women's inpatient facility And then I even went on to sober living, just like Lisa described, for 30 days after that, which is essentially like a house that I lived in with three roommates and um, has a curfew and drug testing and alcohol testing, and you go to meetings and things. But it's um, a really good transition between the bubble of full-time inpatient treatment, where everything you do is dictated to you, what time you get up, what time you shower, when you eat, when you go to the gym, what, you know, all the things that you do in treatment are... Um, handled by other people, to go to a sober living environment where I was kind of sort of back on my own, given that I was in charge of my day and how it went and whether or not I went to a recovery meeting and who I talked to and whether or not I stayed sober. Um, You can leave any time. You could go walk to a liquor store if you wanted to. So you're in an an open environment, more in control of your own fate. However, you're not thrust directly back into your life. And I am very, very grateful I took that extra time to live on my own and get used to the pressures of real life and bills and getting back on the Internet and being able to talk on the phone and things like that. Um, And it was kind of, you know, like sort of sinking into a hot bath. It was just a way for me to transition, seeing my kids but not living at home. And so by the time I went back home, I had been away for 90 days. And uh, it's the best thing that I have ever done 
for myself because at the end of that 90 days, I wanted recovery for me. And um, I have a lot of wreckage as a result of that last relapse. Um, you know, my husband has pretty much had it, and I'm separated, and it's taking me a long time to build the trust back of my my children. And yet, um, I described this on last week's show, despite all of that exterior chaos, because I took the time to get to know myself and to dig into some of the deeper issues behind why I drank, I have a the last six or seven months of, of my recovery this time are stronger than the six years that I had before. Um, so I would say that the sort of the moral of my story, if there is one, is that um, I didn't really, I didn't do any of those things, skipping and cheering and saying, this is going to be great. I went into each phase of that very reluctantly and full of all kinds of excuses why that couldn't work. Um, and it was expensive for me. A lot of that was not covered by insurance. And so there was, there's a big financial hit that comes as a result of investing in um, that time for me to to recover, and um, it, so it's but that actually is part of the reason why I'm determined to help it make it work. When you take that kind of time and you make that kind of investment, um, it really, really has given me a much stronger foundation than I've than I've ever had before, despite the years of sobriety that I had. And um, I'm very fortunate that I have people in recovery in my life to be able to tell me in no uncertain terms that this is what I needed. Um, and I think we'll talk, we'll, as we move on to the next phase of our show, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, where to find those resources and how to get the kind of help that you need, even if you don't have people in your immediate life who are in recovery and know what to do. Um, but the point that I really wanted to stress is that the more treatment that you're able to get, the better off you are, um, and that the idea that you can't take the time for yourself, especially for women, especially for women and mothers, um, is very, very common, and I think it keeps a lot of us stuck longer than we need to be because it's kind of counterculture and counterintuitive for us to say, you know, I need to take care of myself before I'm any good to anybody else. And um, so it really, despite all of the consequences, it's the best thing that ever happened to me, hands down, absolutely no doubt about it. Um, so that's my story, and I think I'll stop here. And I know that Jean um, has been listening in, and Catherine also to this whole thing. I don't know if, they've, if we want to circle back and ask any specific questions or delve into any of the things that we've touched upon in more detail. If not, I have some things that we could that I could mention that we can talk about. But Jean, I'll turn it over to you for a second. Well, I definitely have a lot of questions um, <laughs> as you're talking because I haven't been to rehab. And I realized that I had made all kinds of assumptions. And just as you're talking, I realized I had lumped detox and rehab. I, I thought they were interchangeable terms. So can one of you explain to me and the listeners um, the difference between detox and rehab? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll start, just, and then Amanda and Lisa jump in with any more information. But the primary difference is that a detox is a, is a medical program um, to manage the withdrawal from alcohol or drugs. It's typically between three and seven days. Um, it is um, usually covered by insurances because it's considered a, a medical protocol. Um, we'll talk about the process of getting into treatment, but that's one of the first things to look into is, is insurance and whether or not your insurance company covers a medical detox. It is not intended to be a long-term um, treatment rehab which typically is 30 days or more. There are some programs that are two weeks to, to 30 days, but 30 days, 28 days is the typical stay for an inpatient 
rehab and an inpatient rehab your tip you are almost invariably already medically cleared so you're not considered somebody who's physically or mentally detoxing off of drugs or alcohol so when i transitioned from the detox they had medically cleared me saying i'm i'm no longer in danger um and particularly with alcohol alcohol is one of the only substances that is fatal as if you were withdrawing from it on your own and it's asymptomatic. You can't always tell when you're in danger of a stroke or a seizure. So they don't send you over to longer-term treatment until you are um, fully detoxed, no longer dependent on the um, protocol that they're giving you, and um, have usually abstained from drugs or alcohol for at least three to five days before you go into inpatient. Did so I miss Ellie, anything? Does Lisa or does, Amanda with that? No, Ellie described it very well. Um, right, and I thanks. think that the key is is that people might say, "Well, I haven't, you know, I haven't drank for X amount of days, and I'm committed to going into treatment. I don't understand. I, I don't need to go to detox. And sometimes, you know, it's three to five days, but it, it can be as simple as a stop to get medically cleared. Um, yeah, it's for your safety. I, you know, so I do know people. Um, I'm also also a nationally certified recovery coach that. Um, people will go to the detox, and they are um, there within 24 hours. They're transferred to treatment. Yeah. So it's very um, it's very individualized. One other final point that I want to make, and I've had this conversation with several people considering detox, even though they have not um, had something to drink in you know in within 24 hours or so, is do I need to be intoxicated or high to get into a detox? There's a a lot of discussion about that, and part of that is an insurance reason. But um, fundamentally, if you are calling a detox facility and you tell them that you um, believe that if left to your own resources, you are going to drink, then they will see you. If you can get into the intake area and talk to them about how how your you know the obsession and compulsion to drink is overtaking your life and your mm-hmm. life is unmanageable, invariably that they, they will give you a bed. Um, and the other thing to look into is sometimes there are state-funded beds that are available. So even if it, if you're not insured, it is absolutely still worth calling facilities and talking to them because most facilities have a certain percentage of the beds they have that are state-funded. This is Amanda. Talk- One other thing. Oh, I, I actually said that I had drank that morning just on the <clears throat> because of the fear that they wouldn't let me in. Um, for those reasons, because I hadn't had a drink that day, and so you know that was enough. So you don't, have, you know, the bottom line is you don't have to go in, out and get drunk, which right. um, and 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 it, you know, it certainly doesn't hurt. I don't think it hurt my case at all to say that I had drank that morning. And but when you know they tested me, I I read you know zero, but um, that could still be the case if I had drank that morning. So. Right. Get your get your butt in there and they'll probably and they'll take you. It's sort of the bottom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now is a detox environment more like a medical environment? Is it more hospital like typically than rehab? Well, I think I don't each think so. um, probably my question, it depends a little bit on where. I think okay. other, certain yeah, detox true. facilities may be more hospital like, but for the most part in this day and age, I at least jump in here, but I think that um, there's a portion of the facility, the actual building where they have, you know, you're, you're lying in a cot with a 
you know, curtain pulled in front of you and they're checking on you every hour or so to make sure you're not going into withdrawal. And as long as you're on protocol, on medication, they are treating you like a patient. And that typically only lasts a day or two. And then once you're in with the general population and you're getting three meals a day and you have a roommate and you have your own room and a bureau and a bathroom and things like that, then it really feels more like you're in a dorm. Okay. I actually had that written down, Ellie. Is it more like a dorm, a hospital, or camp? That was my question. <laughs> and I realized it's kind of I like only... if all three of those things had a baby. <laughs> it's kind of like all three. As a as a someone with no experience with this, I realized that my my what I have in my mind whenever someone says rehab is celebrity rehab. The the Pasadena Center that's that was on that TV show because I used to drink and watch that show uh, to try oh, yeah. and figure out how to quit. Um, but that was what I had in my mind, and I think that might have been a little bit more luxurious than most places. But yeah, so it, it's not too yeah. hospital-y. It's, it's more homey than hospitaly, but definitely not like home. And it typically at a detox, also like? you. You can't. De- I'm sorry. One quick thing. Detox. You usually you can't check yourself out because you're under medical supervision. But in a long-term treatment facility, um, depending on your circumstances as to why you're there, it's the doors aren't locked. You can you can check yourself out and and leave. Um, but when you're in a medical detox, that's they will come find you if you go out the window. <laughs> Which happens because you're in danger, happen. right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> So what's what's a typical day like? Can you can you describe what a typical day in inpatient rehab is like? Who wants to take that, Lisa? Yeah, I, I'll take it. So, um, you know, every program is a little bit different, but I can I can talk about my experience with it. Is that you know there was a, a regimented um, time to to get up. And we kind of had a group session where we'd sort of start the day with like a daily reflection or of some sort of positive note, um, kind of a check-in. And, you know, gosh, it seems like rehab, um, it it was was a lot of food. But then then you had breakfast and then you'd kind of go back into, usually that, you know, there was, it was a lot of group sessions. Some were larger groups, some were women only. Um, even the women only were kind of separated depending on the age. Um, sort of, and so usually two groups in the morning, then again, sort of a lunch, a little bit of, you know, some free time, um, exercise was a part of it. Yoga is, is offered, um, at the facility now, um, also outdoor time. I, you know, it's, Mental, physical, and spiritual. Um, so again, it, you know, then there were additional groups, and uh, you know, the, I mean, it, I would say that the detox you had no time on your hands. Rehab you had some time. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a good time. Also, you do have some alone time where um, everybody who I've worked with who gets into treatment, I always make sure that I get them a nice bound notebook. Um, there's a lot of getting to know yourself, and a lot of time for writing. Um, not much rest. It's re- pretty regimented and sort of a, you know, after your dinner time, um, there's usually some sort of a group or, a, you know, a 12-step recovery meeting and um, some formal, some informal group sessions. 
so and typically is, there's usually a counselor involved too. I mean, I at least the place that I went and you went, Lisa, that there was an, uh, an individual counselor that was guaranteed to see you a couple of times a week, and somebody right. who's sort of a point person that you can go to for individual types of therapies. And there are also some inpatient places that are dual diagnosis that can help with um, things like depression and anxiety or other mental health conditions in addition to addiction, and others that really focus more on addiction and the 12-step program of recovery. There are some inpatient places that are not 12-step based, although I would guess that most of them are. Most of the good ones are, certainly. Um, So there are some questions that you can ask up front, sort of what is your program of recovery based on? How much free time do I have? Do you have exercise facilities? Do you have individual counseling, do you have dual diagnosis capabilities there, um, depending on what your individual needs may be, do I have access to a psychiatrist, do I have access to a medical doctor, those are all things that you can ask the, the facility before you go. This is Jean, I'm curious to hear from each of you, what surprised you most as time went on in rehab? What? How did things differ from what you expected, and what was the most um, memorable, I guess, awakening that you had there. Amanda, why don't you start it? Sure. So in my inpatient rehab, you know, detox is kind of a whole different thing, but my inpatient rehab was a court-ordered one. So what surprised me the most is that um, I enjoyed it. Um, despite the drama, despite, you know, I learned a lot, and I actually appreciated the break to get to know myself, although I didn't have the same type of program as you get in, like, a rehab that Ellie and Lisa went to. Um, This was more uh, of an educational thing. But just being away from life, like, completely away from my life and um, just focusing on me and trying to get better, I was really surprised, especially considering the circumstances that I, I got something out of it. I actually... Look at look back at it as a positive um, time in my life. I wasn't I wasn't sad to leave. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Because this is <laughs> there was you know there was a whole you know because there weren't a lot of you know most of the people there weren't didn't have the same goals um, you know as me. They were just looking to get you know do what they had to do to get their license again one day, which is kind of um, you know but. I, you know, I guess I, you get into it what you, you get out of it what you put into it, too. So I didn't, you know, I I was surprised that I I liked it and that I learned so much. And um, I just, yeah, I think that was, a, that was shocking to me because, you know, court order doesn't usually come across that way. Yeah. Actually, from the way you described it, I'm surprised that that's your takeaway, too. <laughs> because... <laughs> It, didn't, it doesn't sound like it was um, uh, your cup of tea going in, that's for sure. What about you, Lisa? Yeah, you know, it's funny. All, it was all, I was just so surrendered. It was It was kind of, yeah. um, it, it really was. You were ready. So, I was yeah. ready. I, You know, whatever I needed to do, as long as I could, you know, whatever I had to do to stay sober, I would do. I, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> just anything. I think, you know, for me, it was um, the sense of community that I felt that when I was in treatment. Um, And, you know, it it didn't hit me at first, that that, that specialness that I had acquired um, was was 
was comfortably stripped from me, and it was that you know that there's all walks of life, you know, older, younger, rich or poor. Um, this disease does not discriminate. And you know, I remember at one point, like with a group of women saying, "Well, like in thinking, you know, I actually had no problem not drinking when I was pregnant with my children." So and and they all looked and said, yeah, and so therefore you must not have a problem. And they all laughed. Like there were all these little sort of things that I used to hang on to, like that set me a little bit better than 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 the rest. So it, you know, and and even that, I mean, just even that one little example that there were these women that were also mothers that professionals or stay-at-home moms that um, we ha- we had a commonality, and um, it was comfortable. Mm. I have to agree with both what Amanda and Lisa said, and I was thinking as they were talking, I mean, I um, I was a reluctant participant in several of my treatments, and um, there is a lot that's very, very humbling about treatment. You do not have access to a phone except for five minutes a day, and you have to fight your way on a list to get to it. You don't, you know, people tell you what you can watch on television, if you can watch television, they tell you, I to ask permission to use a curling iron. I mean, there's there's so many things that are you're just absolutely stripped of your autonomy and your independence. And um, it, you know, I I really the idea of having to live like that for thirty, sixty, ninety days is absolutely terrifying to me and humiliating at the outset. And um, sort of so two things really surprised me once I settled into the routine. I mean, it's utterly terrifying, or it was for me for the first two or three days. Each time I went, didn't matter that I had been there before, and I would think, I am never going to, this is just going to be awful the entire time, and look at these people, and, you know, they, they don't have anything in common with them. I'm either better than or worse than or something. I was constantly comparing, um, and yet within three or four days, how, I love what you said, Lisa, stripped comfortably of that specialness, and the laughing I mean, oh, my gosh, that finding myself (laughs) on day four or five absolutely belly laughing with tears rolling down my face and I'm sober and it's real. And for all of the horrible feelings that come back, the pain and the sadness and the realization of all the wreckage that I have and the shame, I mean, there's all of that. You feel all your feelings, but you're safe. You're around people who totally understand you. And it doesn't matter if they're, you know, 18-year-old heroin addict or a 75-year-old man, you know, who's been an alcoholic for 50 years. We all understood each other, and the healing power of that is is inexplicable. It, it's, it's, you know, like Lisa said, the sense of community and how um, I, I went in kicking and screaming, and I formed a bond with those people that will last me a lifetime. And, um, you know, it's hard because your family's my family's still pretty upset with me and to sort of sit here and say I laughed in treatment makes me feel like it was just a cakewalk and it's the hardest thing I've ever done but like all really hard things the harder it is the more worth more worthwhile it is and um you know it brought me back to me absolutely and you do miss it I wake up in the morning sometimes and I think oh, no one's asking me now how are you feeling today Ellie did you sleep okay would you like another <laughs> dessert how would you mean people really are they care about you and those of us who are broken and battered and enter into a treatment, we're not usually in a place where people are caring very much about us, and we certainly aren't caring about ourselves. So what a gift. So the thing that surprised me the most was that it was, um, you know, one of the several times over one of the best experiences of my life. And um, 
the fears that I had, a lot of them were true because it is hard to be in that kind of controlled environment, but the gifts that come as a result of it are tenfold. So question then, was it difficult to go back to real life where you do have the choice whether or not to curl your hair with a curling iron or to, <laughs> to take back on, like, when, you're, when you are comfortably stripped of all decisions and responsibilities aside from getting well and focusing on recovery, it, you talked about sober living being a good transition back into the real world. Then how is it once you get home and you take all that back on again? I'll just kick it off and then I'll turn it over to Lisa and Amanda. Um, even with the transition time, it's extremely difficult. And it's difficult for many reasons that are obvious and some that aren't. But um, the it, I felt a little unsafe, not even that I was going to drink, but that, you know, that, you know, one of the priorities, especially for me, was to be able to simplify my life, to be able to focus on self-care, to make sure I'm getting exercise and rest and downtime. And, you know, I have two children. Now they're 12 and 9, and they have a demanding schedule. And I have, you know, I had to step away from a lot of the things that I identified myself with, like my work. Um, you know, I can't drive now either, and so there's, it's very difficult for me to get around. And so I'm alone in my head a lot and in my house a lot. And without that time that I took in treatment, I would not know how to do that without feeling incredibly stressful, stressed and, and restless. Um, so that gave me a foundation to know that feelings are, aren't facts, they aren't going to kill me, that whatever I'm feeling, I'm going to be able to get through. But it also showed me the importance of that community. That's what I missed. And so I was determined when I got home to get out there at recovery meetings and find other recovering people so that I wasn't alone. Because the only thing harder than transitioning home would be to do it without any community at all, whether you find it online or find it in therapy groups or find it at 12-step meetings. Um, I absolutely would not succeed if I didn't find that sense of community in my quote-unquote real life, too. Mm-hmm. That's such an important point, uh, Ellie. I mean, I completely agree with you, and I also feel... It was very difficult. And, you know, when you are concentrating on your sobriety and your recovery and you're doing it 24-7 for whatever that amount of time is that you're in treatment, you don't realize that your family um, is not is not doing it 24-7. So when you come back and you say, I'm really good, I'm doing really well, it's really hard to, um, you know, to... to to sort of accept the the damage that you've done, the lack of trust. It, it's not instantly back. You have to earn it back. And it, for me, it took a long time with my children. Mm-hmm. And um, if it wasn't for me, for, you know, um, really reaching out and developing a recovery community and and saying, I need help. And, you know, and if I didn't like the group of people at one place, I'd, I'd go to another. Um, but like Ellie had said, it, it's too hard. I get, you know, if left to my own devices, I'm in trouble. So um, isolation is not my friend. And I need to be, um, you know, that sense of community was really the first part of the healing process for me. Lisa, would you say then that to earn back that trust with family, it's not a matter of grand gestures or, or you know, eloquent speeches, but just proven over time 
day oh, after day after day. Time. So be it's patient. Absolutely time. It, it, be patient. That's all I can say is be patient. Um, Amanda and Ellie, you know, we're both uh, dear friends by my side with that. And, you know, in the the coaching piece that I, I've had to learn with people, I mean, that's the one thing you can't rush is time. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. it, and it's almost like, you know, the grand gestures are almost counteractive. If you need to, you know, make a grand announcement, um, look at what I'm doing for my recovery, then they go, okay, you're kind of full of shit. <laughs> it's sort of, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. is, um, so it, it, it's really, it's just, it's patience and it's, it's learning that, um, to be comfortable with just today and and that's it and you know and I hated all those things you know that you know one day at a time and everything else well I mean that's that's exactly how I those things that I've initially hated to hear is exactly how I've successfully lived my life in recovery I think there's two sides to that coin too because there's not only the obvious wreckage and the ways that you've hurt people and you know they're not only have they not had a chance to focus on healing themselves while you're away they're busier and covering your role in your work or in your life or you know as a parent or how what people are having to step in and do more because of your absence and so there is a lot of anger and resentment and lack of trust but there's also an element too where for me at least I'll speak for myself in order for me to stay sober I have to make a lot of changes and put up a lot of boundaries and be able to say no when I mean no and you know not attend everything I'm asked to go to and work on some key relationships in my life. And um, not everybody is happy with the way that I am sober and having to prioritize myself. And, um, you know, they're angry and I hurt and I completely understand that. But um, if I, and I'm talking a lot of sort of about people pleasing and doing things for people just because I thought it was the right, sort of martyring myself to my children or to my family or to the community, um, I I can't do that anymore and stay sober. And so there are people who, at this point in time, don't really like the sober me as much as they like the guilty, shameful me because I'm um, really having to prioritize self-care. And it's during a time when I have a lot of shame and I feel like maybe I deserve punishment and I deserve to be uncomfortable and I um, I deserve to be sober is what it comes down to. And so there are challenges on both sides of it. There's not just the anger, but there's also changing relationships that may not have been healthy when I went into treatment. That's hard. That's very powerful that to hear that. I mean, that's that's at the core of our illness for a lot of us is the people-pleasing and the moving in reaction to what other people give us as feedback. So you have yeah. to learn to make it intuitive to take care of yourself rather than counterintuitive. Exactly. And that's got to be hard. Or take it's challenging. Effort, I guess it's, again, take it's worth it, but it's definitely challenging, and that's where yeah. other people come in. They really do. I know we're running short on time, Ellie, but can I ask a couple more questions before you go into the closing yep. segment? A couple yep. of things I think um, that listeners would want to hear, and I certainly want to hear. I'd like to know what did you tell your family and friends about, and your kids about where you were um amanda you were pretty open with everyone i'm guessing knowing you as i do (laughs) well yeah i I was and i wasn't i mean work just knew i was out for a medical you know a medical leave of absence so you know and i slowly told people when i came back to work so i told them after but they just knew i was out 
um, there were actually, you know, after I was out of treatment and able to make phone calls, um, I did contact, you know, the person who was really covering a lot of my job um, and just say, you know, um, this is what happened. You know, fortunately her husband's in recovery too. Um, but, you know, said this is what happened and, you know, you can call me if you have any questions because she was doing my stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it might, it, you know, but as far as, like, my friends and family, yeah, they all knew for the most part. So, yeah, How about I, you, that, Lisa? Was, that was... Yeah, for yeah. me, it, it was it, it was kind of real simple. I mean, things were pretty bad for me at the end, right, with my family and my friends and my kids. And um, so everyone kind of knew where I was and could sleep at night knowing that I was safe. And I had a um, similar situation, but I, I my kids were five and three the first time I got sober, and so the nuances of alcoholism and the disease and things like that were completely lost on them. So um, they were told that I was in the hospital for an allergy to alcohol, and um, fortunately there was visiting. Most facilities allow family to come visit so they could come see where I was, and I think that was comforting to them to see that it, you know whatever they were picturing in their head was way worse than what they saw. Um, I was working full-time um, from home at the time I first got sober, and I just explained to my boss that I, I, I think that I talked to employee assistants and or HR and explained the situation to them and said that I required four weeks of medical leave, and I intended to go back to work, but at the end of it, my counselor convinced me that my job was a big contributing factor to my drinking, and so I called my boss and I said, I'm an alcoholic and I'm completing a treatment and I'm not going to be coming back to work. Um, had I gone back to work, I think I was assured that it would have been kept confidential and that it was a family medical leave and that there was not they were not privy to it. The second time I got sober, my kids were older. They witnessed my drinking firsthand. Um, there was a lot more honesty and upfront um, with them being 12 and 9 instead. And um, because I had talked to them openly about my recovery during those years I was sober, they understood why treatment was necessary. They weren't thrilled that I was gone, but they were old enough to say, we'd rather you be getting well than to be here and behaving like what we saw. Um, so, And I was I had home businesses, so I had to help find people to help me run those businesses while I was gone. Um, and within the community, that's tricky, too, because I was pretty active in the community, and all of a sudden I'd drop off the face of the earth for 90 days. I just decided that I didn't know anybody an explanation until I was ready to give one. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. You can't check email, and you can't make phone calls. And so I just, I just left. And um, what I found coming back, I was very nervous coming back. How am I going to explain all of this? I found that I don't, I don't need to explain it to anybody until I'm ready. And even then, it's, it, it can be on my terms. So putting that, how am I going to reintegrate aside and focusing on my treatment while I was there was important. And then as I came back. I figured out on my own who needed, who needed to know what and when they needed to know it, and it really does sort itself out. And and how about the cost of it? I mean, for a lot of people, that's a huge deciding factor on whether or not they can they can go. Can anyone sort of speak to that aspect of it? Insurance or how how you how you face that piece? This is a big issue with treatment in general across the country. Um, there are, you know, we're part of a recovery advocacy group that works with legislators and insurance companies and things to try to get a lot of these laws and policies changed. Um, it's very slow in the in the making, but it's slow, you know, especially with the heroin epidemic we have and the overdoses, it's 
starting to become more of a um, national policy that's gaining some awareness. But um, if you do have insurance, start with calling your insurance company and, again, asking it at a minimum if a medical detox is covered and for how long. Many outpatient, uh, inpatient programs will be covered, at least in part. Um, but it's important to ask, what's the cost per day? Do you have any financial assistance? Do you have payment plans? Um, in my case, it, for both my longer-term treatments, it was out of pocket, and it was very, very expensive. Um, and so it's something, you know, we're still digging out of. But, of course, it it was worth it in the long run. I mean, it's mm-hmm. kind of throwing good money after bad to just keep going to detox and leaving. I would rather invest in the longer-term treatment. But um, if you're uninsured, it does not mean that you can't get treatment. Oftentimes, if you go to an emergency room and they're required to take you and you can um, spend some time detoxing in an emergency room and inquiring about state beds at longer-term treatments or even detoxes, so there are state-funded things that are available, um, but it requires help and it requires diligence. It is it is not, you know, a matter of waking up one morning and saying, I think I need help, let's go to detox. It can be astonishingly, astonishingly difficult to do, and we recommend having somebody kind of buddy up with you to do that, somebody as a trusted friend or family member or somebody else in recovery to sit by you and help you make the dozen or so phone calls that are usually necessary to find the place that's right for you. But I, I encourage everybody not to have money be the first reason why you say you can't go because with enough inquiries, inquiries you can find places that might be financially um, affordable. And even if it feels like it's a too much of an expenditure, um, you know, add up how much you spend on alcohol in a year. Add up how much <laughs> it costs to go in an ambulance or into an emergency room. I mean, that's because that's where you're headed. I don't mean right. to sound flip, but it's you know, it's true. Mm-hmm. Well, it's life or death. It, it really is. is. Funerals are expensive too. Yes. So they are. Yep. Put it. Put the put the uh, horse ahead of the cart, right? Exactly. Right. Pay for it up front. Great point. I I have one last quick question for each of you, and just you know, in one or two sentences, what would you tell someone that's considering treatment, Amanda? Um. I'm sorry. I was <laughs> reading a note at the same time about oh. asked this question. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll come back it. to you. Lisa, what would you say? One or two sentences to someone who's thinking about treatment. Go and make it happen. Because if you're considering whether or not you need it, you likely need it. Um, there, there's just no downside side to it. It's. Um, I, I know it. it it saved my life, and um, you know their kids have their mom back because of it. Yeah, yeah. Amen. I I echo Lisa. I think with the other part of that equation is listen to the reasons you're telling yourself you can't go, can't afford it, can't leave my family, can't leave my job. I'm not that bad, and here's why. Because everything that you're listing as reasons why you can't go are things that you are potentially, almost probably going to lose if you continue to drink. And a lot of people have to negotiate with themselves a lot. They have to move that line in the sand several times before they finally agree to go or are told to go. Um, But the difference between going voluntarily because you know it will help your recovery and being forced to go is is immeasurable. Um, And in my case, kicking and screaming and fighting it for as long as I did, every all those reasons I gave why I shouldn't be able to go are things that I put in jeopardy and almost lost forever because of it. 
Wow. You know, there's one other part that's really important that I just want to make before we close, too, is that if there's anybody out there that's listening and said, you know, I tried inpatient, it didn't work for me. So don't give up. It, you know, I mean, Ellie's a great example of it. That it you know, it, it does not necessarily, it, it wasn't about the program. I'm sure it wasn't a bad program. It's about your willingness to accept um, the treatment. And to, but so, it, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Because um, mm-hmm. there's people with long-term recovery that it took, you know, almost a dozen times to get it right. And But then there's people like Amanda who can go away for um for one week and 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 she's got some of the best solid recovery that I've I've ever met. So um it's not a one size fits all, but if you if you've tried it and it hasn't worked, keep trying. Mhm. Yeah, and I guess this is Amanda. So I guess what I would say is I um you know kind of what Ellie brought up, I went willingly and I think that made a difference for me. I mean, it was something happened and I just I just said I give up. So I grabbed on to my bottom. I acted on that moment. That was, a, you know, that was on, you know, a Tuesday or, you know, the Monday night was the intervention. I went in on Tuesday. I acted immediately. I didn't, I don't know where I would be today if I waited till Wednesday. I honestly uh-huh. don't know if I'd be sober. I, that window I, closes you know, pretty fast. Yeah. It's yeah, and I think I recognized it because it, I had never, ever, ever been willing, ever at all, never. And it popped up, and I just I acted on it, and I went with it, and I and and um, you know, like the phone calls, I um, you know, Ellie sat there with me. I had to beg. I was crying, begging, pleading, on the phone. Called. I called everywhere. And you know, finally got in. But you know, there. I think there was a difference being going in willingly. Um, you know, I, I, it just. You know, so if you if you have that gut feeling that I need help, reach for it and just stick with it. You know, and just and just get get the help that you need. It's the best thing that you can do for yourself. It's worth any bit of money that it costs. And um, you know, it's it's just it's it's changed my life for the better. I I wouldn't want my life any other way than it is today. Yeah, that is so well, great. This has been amazing, amazing. Thank session. you, thanks, Jean, for all those great questions. And I just in closing, there's yeah. a couple of things I want to recap that we really want to stress from this show. Um, one of which is that we are obviously not medical professionals, nor are we licensed drug and alcohol um, counselors. Um, so if you are at all in question about your need for medical help with alcohol or drug withdrawal or detox, please consult your doctor. Um, we want to briefly be, tell people to be aware of symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. They involve but are not all, this is not an all-inclusive list, shaking hands or sweating, racing thoughts, panic, trouble sleeping, muscle tics, a sense of impending doom or racing heart rate. Um, the biggest risk for alcohol withdrawal is a spike in blood pressure, and this can cause a stroke or a seizure, and you do not need to be a daily drinker to be at risk for these. Um, so if there is any concern, please seek medical help. The most dangerous window is actually the second or third day after stopping drugs or alcohol, so be on alert and do not do this alone. Um, the gateways to finding treatment can include your physician, uh, an emergency room, um, Google online resources for lists of treatment centers in your area for state-run programs, 
and um, find somebody that you trust and who you care about who can sit with you and walk you through this process. It's very, very difficult to stay determined to do it on your own, um, and we can't stress that enough. Um, and in closing, we'd also like to ask you to visit Shining Strong's website, which is www.shiningstrong.org. And on there, you'll find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and some links to some of the other initiatives we are involved with in our recovery advocacy, including Jean's blog, Unpickled, which is awesome. Um, you can also find us on the Bubble Hour's website. That is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly from that website, share your favorite episodes with friends, or you can follow a link to subscribe to our podcasts. Then they download automatically, automatically to your devices as they are broadcast on Sunday nights. And Monday morning, you can listen as you go. We thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour. And we also encourage you, you we have an email. It's thebubblehour at gmail.com. You can send us an email if you have any questions or if you're feeling alone or want some advice as to the next steps. We're always here to listen. So thank you, all of you, for being on the show today, my co-hosts and Lisa, and all of you listening to the Bubble Hour. And I hope you all have a great evening. Oh, and one last thing, Ellie. Twitter. We have Catherine's been oh, tweeting right. away tonight, so <laughs> we don't. I say, ladies, it's not that I'm not listening. Oh, then Catherine, right? Catherine's been uh, she's been there cheering us on and and helping us spread the word the through Twitter. Meeting. Yes, she's our Twitter expert. Suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful night. Good night, everyone. You too. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night.